and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. Today is a special occasion indeed. Through my command of dark magic, I have resurrected my old pal James Fennessy, the Jimmy Olsen to my Clark Kent, the Johnny Appleseed to my Paul Bunyan. I don't know. Anyway, he's here to join me in talking to Dr. Kate Buchanan, the office manager for a law firm in Washington State. Today, the three of us will discuss Kate's academic and professional background, her work on the relationship between Scottish castles and their environment, the importance of proper formatting, and the cozy relationship between the study of history and the study of law. And there's an utterly repulsive story about Alice Cooper at the end of this. Finally, before we go any farther, I want to give a shout out to my friend and colleague Sloane Kelly, the Associate Dean for SNHU's Graphic Design Program, who designed the cool new podcast cover art that is gracing this week's episode. Thanks, Sloane. Okay, let's talk to Kate. So what is your name and what do you do? Hi, I am Kate Buchanan, and I am an adjunct instructor for history at SNHU, and I also am a office manager and bookkeeper at a law firm in Bellingham, Washington. Kate, welcome. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your background, where you studied and how you came to be interested in history and um, assume the roles that you're in today? Yeah, so I did my bachelor's degree um, at Benedictine College in Kansas. Um, and it's there that I discovered that I really wanted to do history and that I really wanted to do medieval history. Um, and I had a really great um, medievalist there who took me sort of under her wing and we went to conferences. Um, even though I was just an undergrad student, I didn't present, um, I just uh, tagged along. Uh, so we went to this big international um, medievalist conference that happens in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Um, and she was telling me, all oh, right, well, we're, we're shopping for a supervisor for your um, graduate work. Um, and I was like, okay, so <laughs> let's do this. Um, so, of course, you know, there's all kinds of stuff uh, going on at the conference. It's huge. Um, and I happened to stumble in um, at the very, the last, I don't know, 30 minutes of a panel Um on castles and um so i you know went up and i talked to the presenter who was um richard oram and talked to him a little bit about what i was interested in and the questions i had from his presentation and um, he was from the university of sterling and i applied to a couple of different grad schools but that's where i went um in the end so i did my master's um and he was my supervisor for the master's and ended up being supervisor for a PhD at the University of Stirling in Scotland um, as well. So, That's very cool. So what were your what were your research topics like when you're working on your MA thesis slash dissertation? Uh, so I've well, for my master's, I studied um, particular castles um, owned by a, a family, um, the Douglases. In, in Scotland. Um, and so I did a, a kind of a study on the castles um, that are in the southern part of Scotland. Um, so that was, um, I now see it as a very brief 
project, even though at the time it seemed like it was huge. Um, and then I moved on um, from that to look at castles. Um, I became interested in sort of looking at the, how the castles um, were situated and how um, the relationship uh, developed with the landscape features. Um, so my uh, PhD research was basically on castles and their landscapes. And what were your general conclusions from the uh, from the dissertation? What where did it all lead you? Um, well, <laughs> so I I did a, a bunch of for my math or for my PhD. I did a, a bunch of experimental models to kind of assess. Um, see if I could quantify what that like relationship was between the structure and the um, the actual landscape features and I I didn't necessarily have great success in in quantifying it but I, I learned a lot more about um, just what the relationship is and how um, the castles in general and it it is um, sort of known if if you're a castleologist um <laughs> it's it's known that there's a, a new sort of wave of studies that started sort of early um 2000s that uh were pointing out hey you know castles are these great structures but you know they have these really elaborate grand landscapes um that are also really important and we shouldn't um be we should be taking those um, seriously when we're considering um, what these castles um, were doing, how they were perceived, um, and what uh, the people that were building them were demonstrating. So that was kind of had been built up a little bit, but nobody had done it um, fully in Scotland. And so my research looked at um, how it was done in a particular uh county or shire um, called Angus. Um, and I looked a lot up at um, the relationship of the castle and um, fishings and mill rights, just solidified that these are incredibly important features. Um, there are other features that um, are very important in the landscape, but these are the ones that um, are documented most readily. <laughs> so... Mm -hmm. They're the ones that you can actually find in the sources and ones that you can actually find still kind of in the landscape. So when you're talking about the relationship between castles and the landscape, are you talking about kind of the extraction of resources from the surrounding landscape to build the castle? Or are you talking about maybe like the strategic location of the cans the, the castle? What what is the relationship that you're that you're looking at? So um what I kind of look at is more how the the landscape surrounding the castle is used as an additional way of representing authority. Um, so yeah, there's these resources um, that are available and some of them are used in the building of the castle, um, but... By that, did you mean that uh, as a way of projecting power because you've got soldiers surrounding the castle or how, do you, how, how did that play out? Yeah, so I, I come from a school of uh, castle studies that doesn't, I mean, yes, there's a, a, a military um, aspect to it, but um, that was typically not your main focus of a castle. 
so your main fo focus of the castle is just to to kind of project power um, and provide a nice stately home for you know the rich people, the wealthy, the big classes. So it has very little to do with the the military function. And so what I'm looking at is more how um, these elements of the landscape really bring out or solidify um, the power at that location in a way that only the structure that is the noble residence can't do on its own. Interesting. And so, um, so that was the gist of your, was that your MA thesis or your, your doctoral dissertation or was that both? Uh, that'll be the doctoral dissertation. So I did okay. look a little bit on that um, in my master's, but was definitely expanded on um, for the PhD. So you said that you kind of got into that going through a conference presentation and your one of your advisors got you hooked up with the, uh, the what became the doctoral advisor and all of that. So ha are you thinking of going any further with that now that you've graduated? Are you thinking of publishing that as a book or what, what, what are your plans going forward with that? Yeah, so I've got a couple of projects going slowly. Um, <laughs> so uh, I do want to do a book, but it's uh, not necessarily on exactly what my PhD was on. Well, I, like I had mentioned, I did a lot of sort of experimental analysis um, in my PhD, and I don't think that would really translate well into a book. Uh, but I do want to sort of take the knowledge that I learned about um, all the, the landscape features um, around the castles of Scotland and sort of do a book that just kind of talks about those. There's not really been, there's been a, a good like survey of all of the parks, hunting parks and forests um, in Scotland, but there hasn't really been a, a big survey uh, looking at all of the, the other features and how they related to the nobility in Scotland. So we're, we're looking at mills, um, we're looking at um, fishing rights, yeah, parks and gardens are also um, a part of that, um, but there's also, you know, orchards and other features that crop up as being very important, but there hasn't been a really good survey of that, and um, I'm very slowly <laughs> going through and cataloging um, on the documentary side when each of these sort of features is mentioned in documents pertaining mm -hmm. to medieval Scotland. So it's kind of a slow process right now. Mm -hmm. Okay, I was wondering, um, is there any comparative element to, um, to the studies that you've done? Just, uh, just thinking about how unique the landscape in Scotland is, but also in almost every area of the British Isles. So, I mean, looking at castles that pop up in, you know, in England, in Wales, oh, um, yeah. in Ireland. Um, do you actually take into account like how landscape in each one of these, on each one of the islands and in each one of the areas actually influences the, the organization and the construction of the castles? Yeah, so there's a lot of influence, not only in the British Isles, but that comes over from the continent as well, um, especially France. Um, so these families were, you know, intermarrying very regularly, and you would see a lot of people that are like, hey, we have this big fancy thing in France, and I want this big fancy thing in Scotland, even though the weather is not as nice um, for enjoying said open gardens or whatever. 
so there is quite a lot of, of cross influence there. And yeah, one of the, the things that I had kind of hoped with um, trying to develop methods to quantify the relationship was that you could then take like, okay, well, this is how it is in Scotland. Is it, are, are these, is the relationship between the noble residents and these um, major uh, resources stronger or um, is it less strong than it is in France? Of course, there's a lot of uh, different things that you have to look at because France is a much larger country um, than Scotland and it has, you know, bigger estates and that sort of thing. So when we're looking at the Scottish um, castles, you're looking at not only sort of mid, mid-tier nobility within Scotland, but if you're comparing the nobility rank-wise, um, and wealth-wise and power-wise, the same mid-tier um, in um, France, you're, you're kind of on a, a completely different level. Well, that, that's cool. So, um, so you said that you're thinking of going with a book, uh, possibly. Um, so you mentioned that you you teach for SNHU and um, and that you work in a law office. Is that right? Yeah. So I'm office manager and bookkeeper um, at a law firm, which is my day job. I can definitely talk about how um, being a historian has helped in that um, aspect, if you'd like. Yeah, that'd be great. I mean, one of the things that we like to kind of get across with with these podcasts is that there are um, opportunities for students with history degrees uh, that have mastered kind of historical skills, even if they don't become, you know, the the stereotypical tenure track professor, there's lots of other opportunities out there. So yeah, if you've got, um, if you could draw some connections between your history training and what you're doing uh, in this office, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, so there's a lot of things that I didn't necessarily realize. I mean, I didn't not realize how they were connected until I worked here, but it was, you know, it's not something you really think about until you're faced with it. I remember when I was in the middle of my PhD, the we had sort of a restructuring um, and the law school ended up being joined up with the um, history department and a couple of others to, to make a big school. Um, and I thought that it was strange to bring the law students over, um, but that there were ended up being a lot of um, similarities in how we approach things. And that really actually was solidified once I started working at this uh, law firm. As a historian, obviously, research is a prime skill that you have, and you need to be able to do a lot of research. Um, and you need to be able to do it effectively when you're working um, at a law firm. Um, and aside from research, you've uh, been trained to write and to write well. Um, and uh, depending on what you're doing at a law firm, um, you may or may not be doing as much writing, but um, it's definitely something that is a valuable skill. And within the, the umbrella of writing, you know, it's, it's the way, you know, historians are, are trained to form an argument and to support that argument with evidence, um, which is exactly what you're doing within law. You have an argument and you have evidence to support that argument. Um, if you don't have evidence, then you're not really going to get anywhere. It's a really good um, aspect of that. Um, and then sort of the last thing um, my students sometimes complain how picky I am about um, footnotes 
and keeping to the uh, Chicago manual of style. Um, In the club. <laughs> and <laughs> it always amazes me at how they can not adhere to the style. Um, but it's what, I mean, I didn't really think about it when I was a student either. So I don't really uh, blame them for not really thinking about what it means to be able to to adhere to the specific set of instructions that is a citation style. There are lots of jobs and um, legal is definitely one of them, but it could be any other uh, job there that's gonna require you to put um, material that you know is in one format and make you use, um, rearrange it and put it into a very specific different format very specific rules and so being able to do um, that with your footnotes being able to adhere um, to <laughs> those specific rules with your citations uh, means that you are developing that skill and demonstrating that you can follow rules and you can put information that's in one format into a very strict and rigid other format um, very cleanly and precisely. Um, and that is definitely something that is very valuable when um, working uh, at the law firm. I work in uh, an immigration law firm. We fill out a lot of forms and you have to put uh, information in very specific formats um, and you have to follow very specific rules. And it doesn't matter if you're doing that within a court or if you're filing anywhere else. It's a good skill to have, and it's something that I think um, that people often forget when they come out as a historian, that they have this ability or um, that they've been trained in this. Um, and it, you know, should be useful if you're, I don't know, part of my job is bookkeeping. So obviously that requires um, a lot of putting information in one format to another and attention to detail. Um, but if you're working in any of the sciences, that sort of thing, it's it's a really valuable thing. Yeah, your uh, your whole discussion is taking me back to um, a few years ago when I was when I first graduated with my PhD. I had I didn't have a, a full time job lined up, so I was doing the the adjuncting thing where I was where mm -hmm. I was working at two or three different schools and teaching different classes and. Uh, but that wasn't full time and it didn't really take up all my time. And because I'm, you know, a glutton for punishment, I decided, hey, let's go back to school. And so I was trying to figure out what other, you know, what other degrees <laughs> should I go for now that I've got the PhD and all that. And uh -huh. the one that I ended up doing was I ended up taking a bunch of uh, paralegal classes at the uh, community college here just to kind of dip my foot in that because I didn't want to go straight into, you know, I didn't want to go full on into grad or um, law school because that was another that was going to be a huge obligation and all that. So I decided yeah. to kind of dip my toe in the legal field by taking paralegal classes. And yeah, the stuff that you're mentioning is, is exactly the stuff that I noticed in those classes is that you need to have the ability to make an argument. You have to be the, you have to have the ability to collect data and analyze large, you know, large collections of data and you have to cite it correctly because as every mm -hmm. instructor beat into our heads in all of those courses, <laughs> a judge is going to look for any reason to throw out your document because all your document is taking up everybody's time. So if it's not, 
formatted correctly and cited correctly, that's going to be the excuse someone's going to use to throw your document out and then you'll lose the case. And then you might, exactly. and then that's going to look it's very bad. So much higher. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so don't, don't give the judge an excuse to get rid of your document. So it has to be correctly formatted and that would drive. And since I had come out of a PhD program, I was already pretty good. I mean, I had to learn the new, the legal style is different from Chicago style. So I had to learn that, but the, mm -hmm. the, the need to properly cite everything had been beaten into my head for so long that it was no problem. But I had a lot of other students and a lot of other students in those courses that didn't get that. And that was hugely frustrating for them was just dealing with the formatting and all of that because everyone's like, well, I've got, you know, I've, I've, I made the argument and it's like, yeah, but you didn't do it in the right format. You didn't do it in the right citing. So it's, you, you, you just lost the case. <laughs> and so yeah. it was very frustrating for a lot of people. The resistance yeah. to proper formatting is, it's so interesting because in so many different industries, un unless you're just going into something like the trades, there's always a format for something that, that needs to happen. For example, I just had to learn how to write decision papers in the, in the format that my organization wanted it in. And like, I think that's something that students of history, the sooner that they learn that, the better, because formats are going to change. You just need to learn the discipline of learning a format and applying it and the importance of actually following the format that's, that's required for a certain, whatever it is for a certain document or, um, or whatever you need to submit. Right. And it definitely changes, like it changes from country to country and it changes from purpose to purpose. Um, but yeah, it's, it's being able to identify, okay, this is what the new format is. Let's carry on this way. I did find the, the paralegal classes actually did find those really interesting because it was doing research. It was creating arguments. Usually they're much more focused arguments than kind of a broad historical argument, but that was kind of nice because you don't always want to be dealing with broad historical arguments and all that. It's kind of nice to uh, dig into an argument about, you know, <laughs> was that person responsible for this, for this slip and fall or something like that. It's a much more focused, yeah. but it still gives you a chance to really build an argument collect the sources, cite the sources. And it also has a much more immediate feel to it because, you know, you're handing it off to the actual attorney or something and they'll, you know, they'll tell you right away if this is junk or not. And so it, it, it had a bit, a much more kind of faster paced, a much more, you know, immediate feedback. Um, so it, it was like, it, it was like studying history on steroids kind of because it's everything is much faster paced. You know, everyone's getting billed by the hour. So everyone wants it done as quickly as you can. So there's not really the sitting back and thinking about what you're going to write for six months at a time. It's all about doing it right. <laughs> and hope you get it right. Hope you, it, hope you do it well, hope you do it correctly and then quickly move on to the next thing. It was, it, it was, it was a, in some ways it was similar to, to history, but it was, like I said, it's just in a much faster paced environment. Right. It's just like, yeah, you're definitely fast forwarding through most of the process. Yeah. yeah. So did you have to take any, any legal classes to, to get into this or was your history training enough to get you into that office? So yes, because my position is office manager and bookkeeper, I did not, but yeah, there's definitely paralegal classes are, are definitely a good place to start. It does kind of depend on the law firm, though, because we're immigration law firm. You know, we're we're not really dealing with your standard courts as much as as other law firms are, and we definitely have our own sort of methods and policies and structures and all of this. But they don't they don't fit in the same sort of lines that um, 
your standard court process does. So although there's a lot of valuable skills in having a paralegal certificate, um, there's still like so much, like all of the content of what we have to do is something that we, you know, train in-house or somebody that would have worked at an immigration law firm before had skills in. So you don't have to go that direction, but, you know, it might be worth, if you're interested, it might be worth talking to um, any law firms that you might be interested in um, working for, um, you know, kind of like um, when you're thinking about doing a history degree and thinking, okay, well, what kind of history do I want to study? Maybe think about what kind of law you want to work in, because, again, immigration law is one thing, estate law is going to be very different, um, and sort of um, working with regular courts is also going to be very different, um, and they all have their own sort of unique perspectives on on how process is and what the best way to get the right training to work in the the field is. Yeah, and each of those fields also has its its own history, really, because uh, you know when I was taking the paralegal classes, I would I took one on. Um, there was one on immigration, there was one on intellectual property, another on, you know, like torts. And in each of those, there actually was a pretty strong historical component to each of those because you talk about the evolution of the various laws that the paralegal or the attorney are going to have to deal with. So in the, you know, the intellectual property one, you would talk about how copyright laws have evolved over time. And uh, in the torts ones, you'd talk about how tort law has changed over time. And um and so really, there really is a lot of historical content in those courses. It's not necessarily learning the people's, you know, specific person's names and the, the, the wars and all of that, obviously. It's more of a, it's much more focused, but it's all about the evolution of legislation, either at the national level or the state level, sometimes at a local level. But it's also, there was um, in, in a bunch of, in some of the courses, there was a lot of talk about how specific courts evolved over time. So there's the Supreme Court, obviously, and appeals courts, and then state courts, and how they've, how those processes have changed over time. So there really is a pretty heavy historical component to all of this. Yeah, and definitely, if you're working on like case law and stuff, you need to be looking into what kind of other cases are addressing similar issues to the one you're looking at and looking at, okay, well, um, there's this one argument here where a judge made this ruling about this, but it has there been anything since that's maybe overturned that. And that's a very important part of the whole arguing back and forth. And it's like, oh, well, yes, this judge said, yeah, the, the X mm-hmm. is going to be how this is going to be addressed. But, you know, two years later, this actually happened, which makes it um, no longer the right way to proceed. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge challenge when you're presented with a case and you want to figure out where does the law stand right now because, like you said, you ha- as part of your due diligence, you have to go find every single case that's been decided using this, using this line of law because, yeah, mm-hmm. if, you, if you miss a case and the other side's attorney does find that case and, and that particular case destroys your own case, <laughs> then, then everything right. falls apart. It's, it's kind of like a, an issue that, I've, that I kind of have a lot of times with students is that when they go out and do their own research, it's like you have, you have to find everything that is relevant to your topic. You can't just do a Google search and find the first five hits that you get. You sure. have to, even, if it, even if it involves travel to overseas archives, you have to go find everything that's relevant to it because 
if there's something in those collections that refutes everything else you're saying, then you don't want to open yourself up to that kind of uh, a challenge or crisis. And it's just right, or at lie. the very least, you want to be the one that then finds that so that you can be the one to correct yourself. Right. Yeah, exactly. You, you want to do your own quality control. You want to prevent yeah. the other side from finding it. Um, and it's the same thing with history is that you don't, you know, the worst feeling is when you submit something for publication and, you know, reviewer number two comes back and says, Oh, well, what about this collection that you obviously didn't look at that refutes everything you say? And you're like, Oh yeah. God. <laughs> yep. And you're like, oh, well, I didn't know it existed. So right, <laughs> and so in um, in legal research, yeah, you have to find you don't you don't want because who knows that I don't know the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals at one point may have said something that completely refutes everything else you're doing, and you can't just mm -hmm. ignore that. So it's it's a very it, it requires a lot of due diligence and a lot of detailed research that um, can be difficult yeah. to to learn. You have to kind of pick it up over time. Yeah, it can be very exhilarating. It can also be you know, kind of a trudge um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to go through all of that uh, material. And mm -hmm. sometimes, I mean, we've talked about how legal can be like doing history, but so much faster. And I just want to add that there are times when law does not go very fast, too. Sure. Um, <laughs> It's, well, yeah, it's yeah. The law seems to be one of, as a career seems to be one of those things where you hurry up and wait. You uh, yes. you have to do a whole lot of very fast work to get the initial case put together, and then yeah, you submit everything to the court, and then your you know the next court date could be six months away or something. <laughs> so, right, exactly. yeah, it's a a lot of um, bursts of activity with a lot of dead space in between. I'm sure. Yes, I know. I always laugh about that when I watch. I don't know whatever. TV show or movie that has, you know, a legal theme or something, and it's like, you know, people are having a meeting and then they're in the court like the next <laughs> afternoon, and I'm like, ah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that that's not how the law works, people. Yeah, it's not that exciting. <laughs> so, what do you see uh, in the law firm when you're working with? paralegals or attorneys, do you see a lot of them having historical backgrounds also or do or, or, or not? Yeah, actually in our firm, the attorney that I work for has a history background. He actually started out history and then I think he taught history for a few years and then decided to become a lawyer. And then now he's been a lawyer for well, 30 some odd years. But uh, He's, yeah, definitely started out in history. And then uh, there's another uh, paralegal that has a history um, and archaeological background. It's been good. Um, we have other sort of anthropology background people um, and I guess maybe some political science people as well. I don't know that anybody started out, started out on the law track initially. We even have some environmental science people that then moved over. To, to working on law. Yeah, it seems that history um, as a degree seems to be like a launch pad for a lot of uh, law degrees. I've known quite a few people who did their undergrad in history or in English and then went on to um, law school. Yeah. Yeah, that's always one of the most, um, I don't know if it's one of the most common, but yeah, for whenever we get reports about where students graduating with history degrees go to, law school is a pretty big uh, uh, a pretty big place for people to go. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it, you know, what can I do? I can write and research. Okay. So 
Right. What's a good place where I can write and research? Right. <laughs> You've, you just spent years training to write arguments and use sources and all that. So yeah, law is a pretty good uh, place to go for that. That's good. Yeah. If you think, if students are listening to this podcast or thinking that that would be an interesting route to go, what advice do you have for those students that are thinking of looking for legal careers? So my advice would be to look up some attorneys and if anybody's willing to meet with you and chat about, you know, what your thoughts are, talk about their field a little bit, and then it's always useful to to have a little bit of experience on the job, you know, try it out. If you can get, if you have the luxury um, and, or the job of finding some sort of internship or, I don't know, maternity leave cover or something like that um, to give you a taste of how a law firm actually works, then that's a good place to start. You know, there might be a, a job and reception or something um, that um, doesn't necessarily require paralegal uh, position um, and that can at least let you see a little bit of the day-to-day like okay these are all the things that are going on this is what stresses people out this is what doesn't stress people out and then you can kind of figure out okay do I think that would stress me out (laughs) or do I think I would enjoy that sort of thing Um, because it can be it can be pretty stressful but you want to you want to make sure that that's something that you can handle and you know, maybe that's the kind of thing that you enjoy, having the high-pressure stakes. But yeah, that's what that's what I would suggest. Um, and then, you know, from there, uh, look at the paralegal programs. And maybe the people that you're talking to, the attorneys that you find, are those that actually help run the paralegal course or are law school instructors. Because um, mm-hmm. um, they would also be able to help you sort of determine if that's really where you want to go and how how you want to go yeah that's kind of how i got into the the paralegal thing is that i was actually teaching at the community college there i was teaching a history class and you know someone i don't remember who it was it might have been my wife uh mentioned paralegal just as a potential career and so i uh you know next time i was on campus i just kind of walked over to the, <laughs> the paralegal program office wherever that was and just asked who i could talk to and they, you know, they happened to be one of the, one of the professors happened to be there. And so I just kind of sat down with them and talked for a few minutes and came away from it thinking, yeah, this might be a kind of an interesting uh, route to go, which actually uses some of the historical skills and all that. And then I ended up enrolling in some courses and I never actually finished the program. Um, mm-hmm. I ended up just ended up finding some history gigs, but um, for a while there, I was really into it. And it was, it, it, I thought that if the history thing didn't work out, I thought that was really going to be a cool uh, route to go. I didn't know if I, I still hadn't decided if I was ever going to go all the way to law school or something, but the paralegal program seemed to be a good kind of halfway point for uh, getting into the field. Yeah, it's a good, it, you don't have to commit as much as you do <laughs> to the right. law school and it can get you to decide whether or not the intensity of law school is worth, worth right. it. <laughs> yeah, higher pressure, higher costs. <laughs> yeah, definitely on the cost side. Uh, yeah, no, this has been a great conversation. Thank you. And I really, I'm super interested in your research as well. Um, yeah, well, I, I've only been to Scotland once, but I, I lived in Liverpool for a while and I've been to Ireland and stayed there extensively with people for like a number of times. So, uh, reading about the, the environment and how it impacted the creation of castles in Scotland. I mean, it's just, that's fascinating. So I look forward to reading it. 
Yes. Yeah, so well, uh, hopefully it'll get done soon. My my ability to write has dropped with the arrival of the baby, but I still get some stuff done. Yeah. Well, when you do publish it, um, you know, we'll bring you back here and uh, and do an interview about the book. Yeah, yes. Well, hopefully it'll be an article before then. But yeah. Either way. <laughs> <laughs> so let us know if you do when you uh, when you do publish something, and uh, we'll uh, you know if we're all still still doing this, <laughs> then we'll, uh, yeah. we'll come back together and then, and have a talk about it. That'll be awesome. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. Yeah, no problem. Um, before we go, do you have anything that you would like to, uh, we'll start with you, Kate. Do you have anything you'd like to uh, recommend to the audience? Yeah. So if people are interested in Scottish history from anything from medieval or even earlier onto sort of more recent history, there's a really great publication called History Scotland. That is, it's more oriented for the public, so it's it's not as stodgy as some um, academic publications can be. Um, so it's it's written generally really well, um, and but the research is sound because um, it's mostly academics that are actually contributing to it. So so it's really good um, if you're interested in it. And their issues cover a wide variety of things, and they do a great job of highlighting sort of new uh, interesting places that you might want to visit and uh, other books uh, sort of more popular history and other um, that are more on the academic side um, recent stuff that's coming out um, so if if that's something that you want to look in I would recommend um, you can get it as an e-publication I think it's only well it's probably like three or four pounds a month which probably converts to about seven dollars a month maybe you can also get it in hard copy um, mailed to you, but that might be more expensive than the e-copy. But yeah, it's, it's great. It's good fun. And if Scottish history is something that interests you, I would recommend you looking that up. Very cool. And, you know, we're not jealous at all that you just got back from Scotland. Whatever. No, not at uh, all. <laughs> I had to go visit family for Christmas. Nice. <laughs> I got to go to California for Christmas to visit family. And I get to visit yeah. Jimmy. Oh, nice. Yay. <laughs> Yay. Yeah, well, a lot of uh, my husband's from there, and so a lot of people hadn't met um, our daughter yet. So we had mm. a little bit. Well, that's an important trip then, yeah. Yes. Yeah, it was pretty fun. Great. Although jet lag with an eight-month-old is... Oh, <laughs> yeah. Interesting. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for that. Uh, Jimmy, do you have anything to recommend for us today? I do. Um, actually, today I want to recommend a location in my own backyard, which is the Presidio of San Francisco. The Presidio used to be native land. The Ohlone tribe lived there. Um, then it was a Spanish fort, which is where it got its name, the El Presidio de San Francisco, uh, right around 1776. And then it um, became U.S. Army land um, until about 1994 when it was transferred to the National Park Service. The Presidio Trust, which runs the, the, uh, the park, not private. Um, so public entity, but the park itself is uh, self-funded, so it doesn't take any um, funding from the federal government or taxpayers. Um, and it does that by actually renovating a lot of the historical buildings for lease to different um, companies or renting different properties to people, but um, also maintaining a lot of the historic uh, grounds at the Presidio using that money. Um, and there are tons of trails. Uh, it's absolutely gorgeous. And uh, I'm lucky enough to be able to walk through it anytime I want, but um, that would be my historical recommendation for the day. Awesome. Yeah, I've been driven through it, and I've been to, uh, as we've said 
off mic, we went, I've been to um, Fort Point by the uh, Golden Gate, but I have, don't think I have spent much time at the Presidio. So hopefully next time I'm in the area. We will go. Excellent. All right. Well, my recommendation is a bit less seriously histor- historical, but it's, it's more of a cultural thing, I suppose. It's a book called No Encore. Musicians Reveal Their Weirdest, Wildest, Most Embarrassing Gigs by uh, Drew Fortune. And the book is a collection of interviews with probably 50 different uh, musicians, uh, people like, uh, you know, from some of the people from like Jane's Addiction, Lita Ford, Peter Frampton, The Stooges, The Go-Go's, Soul Asylum, Tristed Sister, Devo. It's got this, this, Drew Fortune, the author, somehow gained access to a lot of really cool people. And he started out his project by, he wanted to write a book about musicians talking about the best gigs they've ever had and then the worst gigs they've ever had. But he found out pretty quickly that the best gigs they've ever had, those were usually pretty boring stories because those were usually like, uh, you know, my family was there and it made it really special. He's like, yeah, that's boring. Let's talk about the worst (laughs) gigs. And so the book is all about the, the worst gigs. And so it's just the, the, the book is, it's, it, it's very fast because each interview is maybe three or four pages where, they, where basically they just talk quickly about the, the worst experience they ever had. And so there's all kinds of stories about, um, they're just hilarious to read. Some of them are kind of tragic, but some are hilarious too. So there's like one story where the band Guar had uh, these squirt guns filled with blood and for some reason, a, skin, a Nazi skinhead group decided to crash one of their gigs once. And so they ended up spraying them with these blood things as cops were trying to drag the Nazis outside. Um, but the, uh, the, the best story that I've read so far, and I haven't finished the whole book yet. I'm probably halfway through. But the very best story is, is the first story, which is by Alice Cooper. And he was talking about a concert sometime in the 70s where he used to have this big, massive python that... Um, he would walk out on stage with, it was part of his theatrical, you know, he had a big mm-hmm. and all that. Um, he was talking about this one concert where he was walking out on stage with the, um, with the Python and, um, and everybody started laughing at him and he didn't understand why. <laughs> and it turns out that it was because the Python was basically pooping all over him. And he said that Python poop is like one of the worst uh, substances that he has ever encountered. And so he, so the the roadies tried to come on stage to clean up the 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 snake poop because he didn't want to you know slip in it or whatever, and it, and he said as it you know as he just mentioned snake poop is one of the worst smelling things ever and so the roadies, who because they were part of the act they were dressed up as clowns, uh, so they came out on stage with their clown makeup on trying to clean up this snake poop, and one of them ended up sliding in it. And then one of them smelled it and threw up. And then the other one started throwing up. And so he talked about how he was surrounded by vomiting clowns that were, that were uh, sliding around in snake poop. And the crowd evidently thought this was part of the act. And so they were cheering and thought it was hilarious and all that. But Alice said that he was just standing there going, dear God, what do I do? The whole oh world is falling, falling apart around me. All <laughs> and so, I mean, the, I'm not doing, the, you know, he, he has, Alice Cooper just has a way of approaching the world that, makes the story even much funnier but the but that that's the the interview that kind of sets the stage for the book and then it just goes from there and it just talks about some of the most awful things that bands have encountered and it, it makes it sound like you know being a, a rock star has its downsides <laughs> with these various gigs. 
So anyway, uh, so check it out. It's a very, it's a fast read, but it's very amusing. And it, you know, it, since it's talking about people going all the way back to the seventies and all of that, you know, that's how I'm kind of making the claim that this is history related because it, it covers a very long, and it covers a, a whole lot of musicians from a very pretty broad amount of time. So, you know, check it out by Drew Fortune, no encore musicians reveal their weirdest, wildest, most embarrassing gigs. Um, I think it just came out last year. It's really good. That's fantastic. That sounds like one of my loosely connected to history recommendations. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Mainly, mainly doing this because there's a little bit of history and I know that, uh, you know, Jimmy will get a kick out of it. So here oh, we are. For sure. <laughs> it sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's epic. It's just, I mean, I, I, I won't go into any more stories, but like I said, there's like 50 interviews in there with different people. Um, and some of them are just, some of them are just depressing. Some of them are tragic and some are just amazingly funny. And so anyway, check it out. <laughs> so with that, uh, thank you for joining us today, Kate. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This has been wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> Definitely enjoyable. And thank you all for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast, or suggestions for future episodes, send me an email at workinghistorians at gmail.com. In listening to other podcasts lately, I realize what's been missing from these little messages at the end of each episode. I'm supposed to ask you to subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or any of your other favorite podcast apps. Also, if you're in the mood, I'm supposed to ask you to leave a rating or a review at one of those websites. So, please, consider yourself appropriately asked. For Kate Buchanan and James Fennessy, I'm Rob Denning. Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay away from people. Unless you're listening to this episode in the future, when the quarantines and the stay-at-home orders have been lifted, in that case, don't. Be with people. Enjoy people. I bet it's nice in that future. Oh, well. Thanks. Bye. So it is recommended that access to local storage should be persistent. I don't know what that means. Oh, well, let's just ignore it and just roll, roll with it and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. And the recording has started and we're all here. Excellent. Excellent. Okay, cool. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Thanks for the troubleshooting there. <laughs> yeah. This is what happens when you have no budget. <laughs> <laughs> Well, now that it's rolling, let's jump into it before anything goes wrong. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> so three, two, one.